got my Prevnar 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic and at higher risk. Get vaccinated. But, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't give Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar20.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, all right, y'all. All across the USC, Compton, Watts, Bay to LA. Pomona, California, from valley to valley, we represent that killer county. So if you're keeping it real on your side of your town, you tune in to Gangster Chronicles. Gangster Chronicles, we gon' tell you how it goes. Like Pinocchio, we gon' tell you the truth and nothing but the truth. Gangsta Chronicles, this is not your average show. You're now tuned into the real MCA, Big James, and Big Stairs. Strictly from the streets. Hello, we represent the James. Where you at? This is OG Gangsta Granny, and the Gangsta Chronicles podcast is back in effect. Get ready for some of that G shit. Welcome to the Gangsta Chronicles podcast, a production of iHeartRadio and Black Effect Podcast Network. Make sure you download the iHeart app and subscribe to the Gangsta Chronicles. For my Apple users, hit the purple mic on your front screen, subscribe to the Gangsta Chronicles, and leave a five-star rating and comment. We'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of the Gangsta Chronicles podcast. Now, we are moving and shaking and actually working on our new TV show that we got, the Gangsta Chronicles, where we're going to be traveling all around the world doing some of everything, you know? Um, we're dropping this interview, one of many that we got in the fall. Now, this one is with Mr. Mix from the infamous Two Live crew. We touched on a lot of things, man, to find out how Scarface almost wound up on Luke Records, man, of all things. Check this out. We'll be back at y'all next week. What's up with you, bro? What's up, brother? What's going on, man? I'm I'm up here trying to 
Put something on my dome, man. Let me let me put this on real quick. Let me put this hat man, on. Man, nothing wrong with your hat, man. What's up with y'all, man? Y'all cats, y'all gotta get dugged up and everything, man. We just having a conversation. Shit, this conversation is going worldwide. You got to look like you something. Oh, for sure. <laughs> well, well, you know how, man. One of the things I like to do, man, is just really bring the people those behind the scenes conversations that we be having, man. And me and you talk a lot, you know. The two live crew, pretty much, man, y'all laid the foundation, and I don't think you guys get enough credit, man, for what you actually done. You actually, you know, through you guys' actions, you made it possible for people to be out here saying some of the crazy stuff that they saying nowadays because it is a freedom of speech. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the thing about it is, is that, you know, if we were in New York or in Los Angeles, there would be a gang of footage on us. There would be more publicity people involved, there would be more journalists involved. You know, Miami was, you know, off the, um, you know, was outside of the grid of what was um, known to be the grid back in those days. There was nobody here in Miami to really archive it in a way to where it would be sufficiently archived. People wasn't really coming from New York and people wasn't coming from California to check out what our vibe was. We was kind of like on Fantasy Island, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's a situation where it's still almost kind of like folklore and mystery to, to a lot of people. Even when I met you, you really didn't know to what the degree was or what, you know, you know, you knew about the group, but outside of me telling you some, you know, things, you really didn't know what was what outside of the, the records, you know what I mean? You didn't really have a true understanding of why this stuff became what it became or any of that. So there's a gang of people that, you know, that's in that zone. They don't, they don't know anything. Hey, before we go further, let me shout out some of the people that's in the room. Shout out to Caramel King 20,000, Christopher Green, Eric Blake, Gangster Mac, Rest in Priest, Fresh Kid Ice, word. Eric Blake, Rest in Priest, Fresh Kid Ice, word. Gangster Mac, Pioneers of Florida, Miami Hip Hop, for sure. And we go get into it. Um, one of the things Hobbs, oh, I mean, call you Hobbs by your government. Name one of the names mixed. And it don't matter. My shit is my my name is on all the songwriting. They, they'll see my, they'll see Hobbs. You can say oh, for mixed, sure. Though, all right, so people, when I call them Hobbs, don't get confused. That's what I call them by his last <laughs> name. That's what we do. I, I, we go back what Hobbs like maybe twenty five years. Yeah, about twenty five years, man. I met Hobbs when I was a kid. Um, it's been that long. <laughs> it's been that long, though. It's been that long, man. You met me. I was still, I, I was still an artist. You know what I mean? I was an artist at the time. Yeah, I was a young I mean, cat. Your son wasn't even. I mean, I don't even know if he was born yet when I met no, you. No, he wasn't born yet. Christopher wasn't here. Stefan, my oldest son, was here. Right, my daughter, yeah, he was, but the other one. Yeah, the other two wasn't. Man, they came a lot later. On. Came a little right. later on, you know. Right. Came a little later on, but you know, one of the things I, I want to go back to that hospital. That's um, pivotal at the beginning. A lot of people don't know that you're actually from Riverside, California. Yeah, well, um, that's where I was um, stationed at in the military in, um, in Riverside. I'm originally from um, Santa Ana, California. I was born and raised there, went from elementary to junior high there. And right when I was about to start up high school, our family uh, relocated to Corona. When Corona ain't what Corona is now, Corona was only had maybe 20,000 people in it and and maybe 50 black people. And I, our family was five of the 50. Five of the 50. And, and, so, and so, you know, not to breeze 
too much through the history. Um, I know we got limited time, but we could talk. You know, if we told the whole story, we'd be here all, all night. You know what right. I mean? Right. So you left from there and you went to the military, right? And right. that's when you discovered, like, your love for hip-hop. Yeah, well, you know, the funny thing about it, when I went into the service, there was no such thing as hip-hop on the West Coast. It was going on maybe back East. We didn't have anything about, have any understanding about mixing and scratching or any of that stuff, even though that stuff was going on in the late 70s, you know, um, in New York City. The only way that I got put up on it was by being from California, went into the military in 81 and um, got stationed in England where a lot of um, um, people from London, they was more in tune to what was going on in New York than what Californians were. So oh, yeah, shout out, you know, a big shout out to the UK. A lot of people don't really give them those guys over there they credit for winning hip hop, but they was around the beginning. Right, exactly. They, you know, they were there from the beginning. They definitely all of the stuff like Blondie and different other little records that came from from the UK. They was part of the movement to be make it become what it actually became because um, a lot of the guys from New York would come over to London to DJ and. And you know, spread the culture. The break dancers—they would all come to London. You know, they was coming to London before they was coming to um to California. That's that's crazy, man. So so you out there in London, the UK, and that's when you first. I don't know you got your drum machine out there. You got the eight hundred eight out there, right? Well, I got um a six hundred six drum machine from. I was um you know I was over there. Now, one thing I will say is that LA was deep into the pop locking and um you know all of that stuff. So I went out, when I got stationed there, there was some other young dudes that was at the military um, high school um, for Americans. You know, they seen me pop locking at this one situation and we all got together and, and, and formed a group. And what happened is we actually um, entered this contest in London and we got second place and we won like, you know, $600 worth of um, music equipment. And out of that, you know, out of that money, I was able to get this um, Roland 606 drum machine, which, you know, is funny because it um, it programs the same way as an 808 drum machine. So I learned on that. And but the 808 drum machine was way too expensive back in those days to purchase. But I knew how to um, operate it by going to some of the music stores and tinkering around with it and this that, and the other. So I was way ahead of a lot of people that was outside of New York City. You know, cause like I said, most of the guys, they was it was like tri-state area, you know, New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Connecticut. That's kind of what the little circle was. I don't know how it was in Cleveland, you know, but I know that, you know, in those days, I, you know, it was like, you know, it was very foreign and it was, and it was really interesting to me of how, you know, how I was seeing it being done in front of me. Yeah, you you know the thing about it, um, you know, you bring up the six oh six and the eight oh eight, a lot of sounds that are still used heavily to this day, you know, mustard, um, a lot of the different drill and trap music, you know, it's pretty much in every music right now, right. in every musical genre. And um I always tell people that you will always be engraved in my head as the king of the bass, because to me, you are the one that kind of formulated that sound. Yeah, that was um there was guys in Florida that was trying to um make records based off of records that was already hits. It was like, you know, like, um, you know, like, you know, like, uh, I guess kind of like sound alike records. So if somebody, you know, like, um, 
they would make a record like uh, like Trans Europe Express. There was a guy that made a record called Bass Rock Express, where it was you know, you know, the bass, kick, drum, and all of this other stuff. But it was basically Trans Europe Express being done, you know, from a bass standpoint. So mm -hmm. you had a couple of those records around, but it wasn't really no particular artist. It was like studio guys that was doing these types of things. So when I got out there. And, um, you know, when Luke was doing what he was doing with the, you know, mobile DJ thing, the ghetto style DJs, <clears throat> they was playing music from all over the place. But then, you know, a lot of the stuff that they was also playing was Caribbean stuff, you know, stuff that's played on the different islands, you know, mm -hmm. you know, Calypso, this, that and the other, whatever. So there's a combo of me taking those Calypso sounds and different other little things along with the drum machines that I had. Um, and, you know, I made the hybrid into what people know as Miami bass now. Even the guys that was there wasn't doing it the way that I put it together. Mm -hmm. Okay. When, when did you realize that y'all was on to something? Because by this time, you know, we're not going to go into the whole formulation of the group. Not now. Right. But um, when did you know that you guys had something? Well, we knew that we had something when uh when we did the um the throw the d song and basically the throw the d song is based off of the fact of you know us as two live crew and luke as the ghetto style djs we collaborated on this one record so you know luke now wasn't making no records they was just doing parties they weren't mm -hmm. making no music at all so what what i did there was you know there was this one record called dance to the drummer's beat that they would play at the height of the party and people would go wild and crazy over that record. And I hadn't, you know, like I say, being from California, there's a lot of stuff that's, that's going on back East in Florida. You haven't heard any of these records before. So when I seen that, I took the dance to the drummer's beat and put it along with, you know, my drums off the 808 drum machine. And there was a dance that they was called, that's called throw the D, the throw the D dance. And that's what, um, Fresh Kid Ice wrote his lyrics based on what it was that he was seeing them do, how they was doing the dance. So it was, you know, once we did that and we seen that, um, you know, um, when we played it, you know, at that time we had a cassette player to be able to play it through the system and how people reacted to it. But none of the record companies that was in Miami at that time wanted to take the record. Um, Luke took his own money from what he was doing with the parties and got up enough records pressed to be able to give to the rec the local record pool, and it took off from that point. Mm. So what was the first spot? Do you remember the first place you guys toured? And I'm pretty sure quite naturally it was the South. You guys probably started in that little, like, Miami, Atlanta triangle that everybody tours around, right? Yeah, well, and in, in, um, back in those days, Atlanta was like, you know, if you, you remember that movie, um, they talked, you know, the autobiography of um, Bugsy Siegel, when he jumped out of the car and was looking at the um, the looking at all of that dirt in Vegas and envisioned um, having Las Vegas, yeah, that's kind of how Atlanta was. There was nothing. When I mean nothing in Atlanta, I mean no thing. You know, it was <laughs> Miami. Miami was the thing, and was the place for, um, that everybody was wanting to try to be involved with. And and then and the funny thing about Atlanta. Back in those days, it was so many people that was from New York and Chicago coming down there for those jobs that 
people was trying to emulate New Yorkers and emulate people from Chicago and all of that stuff in Atlanta. Atlanta really didn't have no particular um, hip hop identity. It was almost like, you know, it's like the locals almost lightweight didn't exist. Yeah, well, Atlanta really didn't start getting their identity, man. I would say probably until like um, some of the earlier guys, like in the late 90s, like um, they had a couple of rap groups. Um, I forget these guys' names, man, from the South. Um, but anyway, they started kind of formulating their own local little hip hop scene out there. You know, and then when the Goody Mobs and the, you know, yeah, what I'm saying, that's when, when L.A. Reed and Babyface and them set up shop out there. That's when yeah. I, Atlanta started getting their identity, them along with um, Jermaine Dupree. You know, Jermaine, a lot of people don't know that Jermaine Dupree's dad was a um, you know, music lawyer along with um, uh, a record promoter. Oh, yeah, his dad had some cool. And um, Ghetto Mafia. Shout out yeah, to all, Ghetto yeah, Mafia. all of that stuff. Yeah, that was like late 90s and all of that yeah, stuff. They Ghetto Mafia. To... Yeah, because they were definitely the first group that I heard coming out of Atlanta. And I was like, okay, Atlanta started kind of picking up their little vibe from there. Then, you know, you heard the bass records. I know they were very in, heavily influenced by bass because the early right. records that Lil John did, when Lil John was working with Jermaine Dupri, a lot of people don't know that he was doing the Miami bass records. Right. He was, you know, but, you know, but, uh, what's it called? Kind of had him like, handcuffed a little bit jermaine didn't really you know they had the um the um the so so deaf bass all-stars thing but i don't know how much of that stuff you know john actually was able to put his hands on i know that he worked in the office for jermaine i don't know if he really did tracks or anything like that because most of the time it was like i said it was um it was jermaine dupree's show him and his dad's show you know all of the stuff that crisscross did Jermaine Dupree wrote all their lyrics. I don't know how much stuff, um, how he, how much he was involved with doing the stuff with the brat. Um, I know that he did the music and this and that, and you know they did remixes for Biggie Smalls and all them. But they still, there still wasn't no Atlanta identity. Still, it was just a cat in Atlanta that was doing hip hop that was, com you know, competitive. It mm. wasn't no so-called Atlanta swagger. Yeah, that, that hadn't showed up yet. It was just some guys in Atlanta that was doing some stuff. For sure. So that so that was one of you guys' big markets. Now, tell me, this, right. this is the conversations we have. What was the reception back east when you guys first went out there? Um, We we never really went to um to New York outside of the um new music seminars, things like that. They had to respect us in the seminars because our records were selling so much. We was almost kind of like, the talk of the seminars, because we was, you know, this is before Ruthless became what they became. We were, you know, on the East Coast, we were the only people that was challenging Def Jam, even though we wasn't trying to challenge them. It's just our stuff was just very different. And, um, you know, we couldn't be denied based on how much product was being sold. Now, so, um, you know, not to cut you off, because you couldn't be denied. Y'all were selling a gang of records back then. Right, exactly. When did the trickeration come in with the lights being turned off and the microphones being shut off and all that stuff? Was that on the road in general? Yeah, yeah. That basically, you know, a lot of people don't understand that Russell Simmons and them, you know, they controlled all of them. They managed pretty much all of the acts in New York. So when the um, when the tours would go out, either it was a either it was a um, Public Enemy tour or it was a Run DMC tour 
uh, was the Eric B and Rakim tour. He managed all of the groups. So he would they would send stage managers out to Debo the situations at all of the different um venues. You said so, Debo the situation. <laughs> right. Basically they'd say, Yeah, you guys got 10 minutes to do your show. If you don't if you're not done in 10 minutes, we're gonna turn the lights on. We're gonna turn off your music. You know, they were just being on being extra with the people that was either a local act or somebody that had maybe a little record bubbling in the market that they was at. They was, mm-hmm. you know, it was just they get down. It was their thing. They could, you know, they were so trampling just, over it, everybody. And just for the record, it just wasn't the two live crew that this was happening to. This was happening to Cube. This was happening to the NWA cats. It's a whole lot of people that come out of there with the same stories. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Same mm-hmm. shit. Right. You know, so did any confrontations ever come from this? Because I know y'all at that time, Luke and them had a kind of a reputation for putting hands on folks. Yeah, we had um, yeah, we had some issues out there, and um, there was this one time, um, you know, me and the um, you know, back in the day, I never used to go to the um to the radio interviews. I would be there setting my turntables up and setting up, you know, the lights and all that stuff with um with our um, with our show situation. So. One of these guys, you know, saying, hey, man, we see that you guys got some lights and we see that you guys have um, a backdrop. You can only put up one or the other. You can't put up both. And y'all was a major group. <laughs> and that's the thing. You, y'all a major group, right? Right, right, right. We mm-hmm. selling as much records. And, and, the, and the show was in the South. It was like in Savannah, Georgia or some shit. Some place where we were real strong at. Mm-hmm. So... Me and the um, road manager dude, we had the swing on dude. We was beating beating the dude and this, that, and the other. And then when Luke and them finally get there and heard about what happened, they jumped on the dude some more. So it's like, you know, we just we weren't really looking for confrontations. Confrontations are always come to us because they there was really like I say when I mean that there was nobody else being um a person that was um that was like um, challenging the championship of what they were doing out of New York. We were the only one. The Gangster Chronicles is brought to you by the Black Effect Podcast Network. Hey, hold up, fellas. I want to talk to our listeners about this new multivitamin that I've been on, Ritual. Now, let me tell y'all, we deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why, especially when it comes to taking something we go be taking every day. Rituals Clean Vegan-Friendly Multivitamin is formulated with high-quality nutrients and bioavailable forms your body can actually use. What you won't find, sugars, GMOs, major allergens, synthetic fillers, and artificial colorants. Plus, the fresh taste and delayed release capsule design makes taking your multivitamin easy. I got on Ritual because I noticed I, was, I wasn't eating the way I was supposed to, and I still don't eat the way I was supposed to. I don't eat the, you know, the traditional three meals a day. So I love Ritual because what it does, it helps to fill gaps in the diet, you know, with no shady extras. Ritual's delayed release capsule design delivers high-quality nutrients, including vitamin D3 and just two daily pills. You know, Ritual is made traceable. You will always know what nutrients you're taking and where they come from thanks to Ritual's one-of-a-kind visible supply chain. Now, that's something else right there, but this is what I got for you guys. Get key nutrients without the BS. Ritual is offering all the Gangsta Chronicle listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com forward slash GC101 to start your ritual today. AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. 
Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There was nobody that was on our level in any of the Southern markets. We were the only successful record company to um, to have um, gold and platinum records at that time. Then um, Lil Jane them and uh, Rapalot and them came like a year or so later, but they, we were the only two. You know, there was no such thing as um, you know uh, a situation in Atlanta that had any kind of weight, or North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, you know Mississippi. None of them places had anything. It was all no man's land. You you got to say Hobbs. See, one thing about me being from the Midwest, man, you know, originally from the Midwest, even though I've been in Cali for a long time now, um, I think you guys kind of blew it open for everybody because the Midwest didn't really have nobody. You know, we had you get a few people from out of Chicago here. Right. Oh, oh, I can't hear you still. Okay, I can hear you now. Okay, you know, you guys had the um you guys had when you came, you guys pretty much busted it open for the whole Midwest and the South. Right. Because that's when everybody kind of come. The, the other independent labels came because you got to remember, it took Rap a Lot maybe two years before they kind of really popped. You know what I mean? Right. They had the um, they had the um, the one album in 90 uh, where it was like the lineup of um, Ready Red, Bushwick Bill, 
um, Scarface and Willie D. That was like in '90, but we was on, we was like three years ahead of them. Yeah, because that because that was the incarnation of the ghetto boys that really took off. Right, exactly. And and the funny thing about that, our um, you know, friend of ours out of Houston at that time, Lil Troy, that got the had the wanna be a baller record that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. At that time, he was handling Scarface. He actually, you know, the mm-hmm. Call Me Mr. Scarface song was his record, and he was trying to get the record shopped around to different people. Scarface was almost signed by um, Skywalker Records. He had brought um, Scarface to us and all of that. Um, Luke hold Cass- on, hold on. So, so is we breaking some history right here? Scarface was almost on Luke Records? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, But Luke, Luke passed on the situation, mm-hmm. and um, Troy ended up taking him over there to, uh, to rap a lot with um, Lil J now. Now, can you imagine the whole shift in hip-hop that would have happened had Scarface wound up on Luke Records? Because you would produce them hops? Yeah, I would have I would have been producing them. You know, the, the funny thing about it, though, is just like I say, his record, you know, his, his record was on, you know, that Mr. Scarface record was doing really well. And, you know, but at, the, at that time, though, people, you know, we didn't know enough about Texas. Texas didn't know anything about Miami. They just knew about the records that was being done. It's just, you know, it's like going to do records with strangers, even though the stranger can, you know, sounds good or whatever. You really don't know how to judge how well they can do or not do because you're not from their market. So y'all almost pretty much became... Huh? Go ahead, because we got a little lag. Go ahead. Yeah, no, what I was going to say was is that our music was rap music, but it was more dance than it was rap. You know what I'm saying? So we got over in a lot of places that probably wouldn't trip off a hardcore New York rap, but they liked the the party aspect or dance aspect to the records that we was making. Hmm. I I, I can see that because those records was big. I'm talking about, I don't care if you was a hip hop head, you go in a club on a Friday or Saturday night and throw that D or one of those cuts came on, it was on a cracking. Because everybody liked the booty shaking. And even today, even to this day, it gets attention. Right, right, for sure. It gets attention. Um, when you listen to the music today, do you hear a lot of your influence in it? Um, I I hear my influence in it, but the, I think what happens is that these young people. It's the Gangster Chronicles with James McDonald, Steel, and MC8. AT and T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers 
or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, there you go right there. There you go right there. So, um, you know what I'm thinking about, man? I, I'm, I'm go, I want to go back to that Scarface a little bit because Luke almost had Trick Daddy too, right? Well, he did have Trick Daddy. Trick Daddy, basically, um, there was a um, big um, rap contest at the world-famous Pac Jam Teen Club, and Trick Daddy won the contest. And winning the contest, r- winning the contest was to do some um, songs with Luke on his new album that he was coming out with. So that record scarred the Trick Daddy's on. That was part of that deal of him um, winning that um, that thing, and he done did a couple of more songs on that actual album. But when it came time to sign Trick Daddy for what Trick Daddy wanted, Luke didn't um, do the situation with them. And he ended up um, working with um, um, these guys that, you know, built up um, Slip and Slide. Slip and Slide didn't even, I don't think it it existed before Trick um, showed up over there with some other street cats that, you know, did they um, did they thing with Slip and Slide, and a lot of the people that used to work for Luke Records ended up working over there at Slip and Slide. So, you know, it's just <laughs> and for people on the people that ain't familiar, Slip and Slide is another influential label. They kind of brought the second wave of Miami in, I think. You right, know, with Rick Rosses and the Trick Daddies and the Trainers and all of them. Right, but those were all people that you were familiar with. Y'all had access, to, like y'all had access to Ross back then, didn't y'all? Well, back at that time, you know, those guys wasn't doing anything. They weren't, you know, they was watching us do what we were doing. Trina, her mom was a um, big hairstylist in um, in Miami, and Trina was young. I mean, she was like a kid at that time when when our stuff was doing what it was doing. Because I think once she started doing the um, stuff with uh, with Trick Daddy, you now I think she was only like 18, 19 or something like that. And that was like in ninety eight, ninety nine. So that was like, you know, 10 years removed from what we was doing. You know, she was in elementary school, I think, at the time that we was doing what we was doing. Mm, for sure, for sure. You know, going back, Hobbs, and you know, y'all got these records, and y'all was, 
Y'all did a lot of cursing, man. Y'all had a lot of perverted stuff going on. You know what I mean? Perverted? You know, we but I'm talking about in, I'm talking about the eyes. Man. I'm talking about in the eyes of the world. You know what I mean? It was right. really risque content. Right. Was you spooked the first time the police showed up at y'all show? No, nah, because I really thought that they were joking. I mean, we you know, we never okay, I'll put it to you this way. We would never hear about people like Eddie Murphy or Richard Pryor or Dolomite going to jail for doing a comedy act. So why in the hell are they looking at messing with us for doing rap records? Mm, that's real talk. That's real you know, talk. You know what I'm saying? So it wasn't, you know, if it was something that we were kind of spooked about, we probably wouldn't have went no further with it. But um, Luke probably had a better understanding than what myself or um, Kid Ice or Marquise actually had. You know, we were just rolling with, you know, just rolling with what it was that was happening. We didn't really think that it would get as serious as people was making it because we knew that we were just making records. We weren't, you know, trying to be on no extra stuff or making political statements or this, that, and the third or whatever. You know what I mean? So it was it was funny to me. A lot of the stuff, you know, that, you know, my records are actually making this kind of a ruckus or stuff that I'm involved with is making this kind of a ruckus. I didn't, you know, it was kind of hard to believe at first. All right, for sure, man. I want to go into these comments, man, and get some um, questions, man. Um, you know what? My guy Rashad Rice said Ross was down with Eric Sermon before Slip and Slide. He went by the name of Teflon. He's on the Eric Sermon, Eric Onassis album. That is a fact, Rashad. He was he was messing with um, Eric Sermon. He was also messing with the boy um, over at another Texas label. Um, What's my boy's name? Um, oh, you're talking about Suave House now. Suave House. Yep, Tony Draper and them guys. Right. He was down there with them. The Big Willow, He, you know, he went through his transitions. He worked hard. It wasn't an easy road from overnight because I remember hearing about him like prior like eight years before he blew up, you know? Right, exactly. Right. He was doing a lot of writing for different people. What is the biggest thing that you can um, take away from the game? Uh, like, what's your biggest contribution you think you gave to hip-hop? Because a lot of people, and I'm going to say this before you answer your question, I want to say this. A lot of people don't know that you are a very dope hip-hop producer. They know you produce records, you know, dance records and everything, but I don't think they really know that you you got some heat, dog. Yeah, well, the thing is, is that, you know, back in those days, the only person that was um, 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 not, not politicized, um, publicized was um, Teddy Riley back in those days. You know, there was a lot of guys out of New York that was um, good at what it is that they did, but the groups got the credit for for them. You know what I'm saying? And I'm one of those guys that fell into that mode. I mean, basically, um, I knew that I was good at what it is that I knew how to do. I came from a musical world. You know what I mean? I was in, in um, elementary school all the way through high school playing saxophone, so I was already you know, musically trained about a lot of stuff. So I just took what it is that I learned with music um, into, you know, into rap theory, I should say, rap music theory, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, most of the stuff that I did, you know, I had I had opportunities to work with, um, you know, Kid Frost. I did a couple of records on um, on his um, albums. Um, um, the No Sunshine record is, is, I produced that record for him. Um, did stuff, you know, MC8, um, helped on a couple of the um, records that I did with Frost. Um, I did stuff with Lil Flip. 
did stuff with the Ghetto Boys, all kind of different little records here and there. They weren't they weren't singles; they were parts of uh, of the albums that came out. Mm. So, do you feel like you ever feel like you underrated a little bit, Hobbs? Well, I feel like I'm underrated as far as being publicized. Mm, you know, what I mean? people don't really know who I am. You know, um, I guess you know. People know my music, you know, Luke indirectly takes the credit for a lot of the stuff that went on with um, with our records. People would just automatically think that he probably was the one that was dictating all of the stuff that was going on musically because he's the face that everybody knows. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but beyond that, you know, I guess if you have to put it from the standpoint of uh, publicity wise, yeah, I'm extremely um, underrated. For sure. You, you, you know what? One of the things that um, I, I wanted to ask you about, because you because you guys, when the when the group kind of disbanded, when they disbanded, you guys were kind of like at your height, right? Yeah, yeah, we were at our height, you know, and, and, and which is crazy because um, I always felt like, you know, any problem that was happening, it could have been solved easily. But... Um, you know, at that time, Luke wasn't trying to um, solve any problems because he felt like um, he was the reason that everything was happening and that we just happened to be part of his train, even though mm -hmm. we all built the train ourselves. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. everybody had their um, little job to do with what it was that was happening. You know what I mean? So it's just one of those things, you know, now look, when, uh, when you're young, you don't really know better how to handle the situation mm -hmm. and all of that. Because you guys were making a lot of money down there, what y'all? Yeah, we was doing pretty good. I mean, people would come from, you know, from up north. Luke would still do these big concerts. Like every Christmas, he would do a big concert thing and have um, a lot of people from New York, California come out to do this thing. And then we would headline the, um, the event. So, um, you know, people were seeing that we was living in a way that the average rapper wasn't living. You know, everybody had their own spot. You know, everybody had their own cars, jewelry, this, that, and the third. You know, nobody was, you know, wearing each other's chains and all that kind of stuff. It was we was we was living good, but you know, by us being so far away from California and New York, we didn't really truly know how the other rappers was living. So uh, let me ask you this: Is you saying that them other rappers was broke? They had to shake chains and stuff, but y'all had because I know y'all had y'all slick Rick thing going. You used to come out with a gang of jewelry on. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Um, and, you know, and at that time, you know, the, the impression of the, um, of the um, chains back at that time, you know, it was um, what they call hollow gold, meaning that the way that it's constructed, it's not solid gold all the way through, not um, from the standpoint of every, you know, every nuance of what the rope chain was. It wasn't heavy like that. It was They were constructed to where they had a decent amount of weight on them, but the, um, the way that the um, chains were constructed, it was constructed like in a U-shape. So all of it was gold, 14-karat gold, but it would be like, you know, hollow part. It would be a hollow part of the actual um, chain. It would be like in, in a U-shape and then mm -hmm. formed in the way of how the chain would go. It wasn't okay. all the way full up with gold. 
because I saw y'all, e- even when we first started working together, I used to trip out when you came out, man, and you had the Mr. T look going, you had so much gold on, man. <laughs> it was just a thing, you know, the Southern cats always loved their gold, you know what I mean? And gold tooth and, and gold teeth and all that, the grill. Yeah, I, I, never got, I never got into the gold teeth thing. I always felt like I would be in the face of white people too much for that to be the case. And, you know, and, and it was also was um, used as, you know, a form of um, being slick or being a um, robber or a jacker. You know, the guys that had all the gold teeth in their mouth back in the early days, those are the guys that you didn't really want to deal with. Mm. Those are the cats that, you know, probably trying to uh, rob you or take your car from you, you know, carjack you, whatever. That's what- Yeah, them, them was the thugs. Teeth. Yeah, exactly. Them was the thugs, so, you know, you did a lot of stuff for Luke Records. I know you was the in-house producer. You pretty much was they Manny Fresh before it was a Manny Fresh. Right. Well, you know, the funny thing about that is that I've known Manny Fresh that long. I've known Manny Fresh since like 86. And, you know, that's way before Cash Money and them showed up. But Manny Fresh was always doing production in New Orleans. We would be in New Orleans all the time doing shows and they would open up shows for us and this, that, and the third. You know, it's just funny how this game goes. Um, you know, uh, Manny Fresh did the same thing as what Manny Fresh did for Cash Money. I was definitely doing for Luke Records back in those days. And what's some of the groups that you brought in that the people know? You know, like what's some of the groups that you produced and brought um, in? The Poison Clan, which is um, JT Money and another guy named Devonair. And, um, you know, Devonair and them started another group called Home Team. They had the record called Pick It Up, Pick It Up. Um, let me see who else. Um, there's a couple of different uh, people like DJ Toon was part of um, MC Shidey's um, DJ situation. He was one of the um, DJs, and you know, at that time he was like a teenager, and he but he was extremely talented. He never um, got opportunity to produce any of the records back in those days, but he scratched on some of the records and things like that. So. Um, uh, who else was um back in those days? Uh, um, there was we had um um girl um group called Anquiette. That's that's her you know, um government name Anquiette. They had the song um I will always be there for you. It was a slow song that was I remember that. And uh, and then you know there would be people that you know would just be you know, pop in and out you know do stuff um. There was this one guy that used to do our remixes um, that was from out of New York. His name was Chep Nunez. He was probably like the baddest um, editor of, um, you know, doing remixes back at that time. And he was he, he was a guy that I definitely looked up to out of New York. And um, Professor Griff, you know, of Public Enemy, when he had got um, put out of Public Enemy, Luke... Um, did an album on him through um through Luke Records, so that you know crew of New York cats that came down with him, they was cool. Um, there's a bunch of different, like I said, there was a lot of people. You know, we had you know actually um at that time, ready for the world that you know did O Sheila and all of that. They was down at our studios doing stuff too. Is that right? Yeah, they was you know they <laughs> what was so funny. They made us, you know, they're from Michigan. They're from um, Flint, Michigan. So mm-hmm. when they came down, they said, hey, man, you guys going to have the um, computer set up for um, 
to to make the music and we didn't know what the hell they was talking about we, we we're just so used to doing stuff you know hand-to-hand -hand combat but they were used to doing stuff you know in them la studios with like you know la reed and babyface stuff you know they thought we was equipped that way and we weren't you know so it, it, it's just little you know just little stuff like that who else used to come down there we did stuff with um with trouble funk from out of dc good friends with them mm -hmm. um uh oh and um stetson sonic daddy owned them they used to come to miami a lot y'all did that man you know do you ever think how like and that's the truth do you ever think it's a way that the group can never get back together i know Rest in peace, Fresh Kid Ice. You know, we that's unfortunate right there. Do you ever think it's a way that, um, like, Luke ever come back into the fold? Y'all ever put that back together again? Well, if um, if Bezos showed up and said he was going to give each of us $10 million a piece, <laughs> we probably would show up. <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure. Anything, anything short of that, I don't know. It's kind of hard to say because everybody is kind of, setting their ways about you know who would be the boss how would this get done how would that get done and this that and the third you know i you know if if it was um i don't have no problem with working with mark or luke you know what i mean it's just the ism schisms that come with working with them what kind of ism schisms just that criticism <laughs> you know optimism <laughs> 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 Is, is, is that bad, huh? Is that bad, though? Hey, I wouldn't say it's bad. I think it's bad when people badmouth each other um, over the internet. I mean, we've never really done that. I, I haven't done that, you know. I think Mark went in a little bit at one time. But, you know, Luke don't really have to do it because everybody feel like he did everything anyway. So yeah, and the crazy part, Hobbs, is you the one that really started the group up. You lined all the talent up, and you you made it all happen. Yeah, that's true. You know, and the thing is, when you know, if and when a movie ever shows up, there you know these will be things that um that'll you know that'll come to pass. You know, it's like people believe what it is that they want to believe. You know what I'm saying? And um, you know. You, you know, like that old saying, you can't fight city, city Hall, meaning that you can't fight everybody that believes a particular thing. You just have to wait for it to um, go down and happen. Same thing like with this thing with Bill Cosby. The situation with him was already a done deal with the DA. They said they would never pursue anything, but then that guy retired. And then the new DA said, you know, screw what that DA was talking about. I'm going to pick this stuff up. And then put the whole thing in the trick bag that he had to go sit down for two or three years. That was, oh, man, I'm, okay, there I am. Yeah, someone tried to call, man. Oh, so that's what you mean? You put the thing in airplane mode to where nobody can't call you. Yeah, man, because my phone be blowing up. You know, my phone <laughs> ring about 200 times an hour. Man, everybody wants something from me. Yeah, so, so yeah, man, um, you know, it's, I just think that, man, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if, if somebody was to call and say, hey, man, we need to do a record, you know, um, I'll probably be the first one there on deck to do what needs to be done. You know, everybody else might be on some other stuff, but I ain't never been on anything with with uh, with none of the guys, you know, 
You know, I love Mark as a brother. You know, I looked at Luke as an older brother of mine in the earlier days. You know, so, you know, there's never been no issue, issue like, you know, like it's going to be some on-site BS when people see, nah, I ain't, I, if it's ever been that, I ain't never known it to be that. That's a good, that's a good thing, man. What's, Even when you met him, you, I mean, all that, all them years ago when you came to Miami and you met Luke for the first time or whatever. It was never that vibe, right? No, he came in and did the record for us. He came right on in and did the record for us. It wasn't no issue. <laughs> it wasn't no issue. He was always cool with me. You know, y'all always some cool brothers. That's why I always ask, man. Is You know, I think, man, when you're dealing with people that are pretty good people by nature, it's always a chance of reconciliation. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's always, you know, you know, it's always that. Like, you know, a couple of years ago, I did some um, shows with Luke. You know what I mean? But I just, it's the aesthetic is just different. You know, we're, we're doing the stuff with him now. He knows that it's his thing and he's inviting me in. So it's different than, you know, when we had the group thing where everybody had equal footing. Now it's not equal footing. It's a situation where it's his thing and he's bringing you into his situation, which is way different. Yeah, and so... What does Mr. Mix have going on now? Are you still out there making music, man? Do we got a project coming up? What we got going on? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, the only thing that I'm on is on Instagram at Two Live Mix. Um, I'm always doing, you know, doing little stuff and got some projects, you know. But my thing is the man, cut your phone off, dog. Take it off. Put it in airplane mode. But it's all cool. We almost done. Yeah, so, I, you know, the thing is, I'm always um, being innovative, doing stuff with turntable stuff. You know, I'll go on Instagram and do some little stuff here and there. Um, I got some projects that I'm working on, but I'm I'm real, like, on some um, NASA shit, you know what I mean? I don't ever really speak on stuff. You just have to, you know, we didn't know no CDs was coming out until they came out, right? Exactly. Well, that's why I asked, because I know you, you you missed the top secret. You know what I mean? I got to get you to tell this one story, man, because this is the funniest thing in the world, man. Whenever I tell people this story, I, they crack up. What happened the time you gave Jay-Z a beat CD? A beat tape? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> well, we, I was out on the road with Afro Man, right? I was um, his tour DJ. And uh, we had a show up in Buffalo, New York. Nas was on the show, Jay-Z, a bunch of other different people, this, that, the other. So I had never met Jay-Z before, right? So mm -hmm. when I approached him, I um, said, hey, yo, what's up? My name's such and such. You know, so I'm there, you know, representing myself by myself. You know, I'm there with Afro Man, but, you know, I'm saying to our crew, you know, me by myself. So, you know, we shook hands and... um and I had asked him and said, uh, you know, I would be interested in doing um, some remixes, like some up-tempo uh, remixes for you, you know, for Rockefeller, whatever. He said, nah, nah, I don't want none of that. You know, um, you know, Trick Daddy and Trina and them is down there wanting to do some remixes for them. I don't know if he felt like he was trying to diss a motherfucker or if he was trying to be informative. I really didn't know how to take it. But he out, but he gave me some radio drops and all of that stuff after he said it. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, people be on their own thing, you know what I mean? And yeah, 
I just thought that was funny. You being nice in his in your explanation, but I take that though. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm saying though, but he didn't say it like um like it was like you know like he was trying to be on some thug shit about it. He really kind of I think he you know looking back at it, I think he was just trying to be you know informative of you know what it is that I could do. Well, you know what though, man, actually. And that's what I tell people. I, I see a lot of the comments on the internet of people talk about different people. Hove is actually a cool brother. It seemed like it, you know. You know, Hove is actually all right, brother. You know, he do a lot of good stuff, man. He just kind of to himself. He in his own world, you know what I mean? And when you work a billion dollars, I guess you can be in your own world, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like um, there was a, there was this thing. Anybody that watched the um, the Don King movie, there was a line that one of the guys said, say, "Hey, Don." How many bodies you have to step over to get to where it is that you at? And he gave him old shitty ass look and got in his limo and took off. <laughs> so you know, you know, you don't really know people's story and why they move the way that they move. You know what I'm saying? So I try not. If it ain't personal with me, I try not to take it personal at all. Everybody moves the way they feel like they need to move, man. You know, before we go, I got to ask you this, man, because you was around a lot of people before, you know, like as you mentioned, before they became who they are today. And you, you know, you talk about Toomp. Were you around Toomp when he first hooked up with T.I.? Because T.I. was really his artist, right? Um, I don't really know the story story. I'm going to just give you the Toomp version because, you know, it's the Toomp version and the T.I. version and then the truth. So I don't know what the truth really is, but I do know that at the time that um that uh you know Ti was dealing with Toomp, that he had got dropped from um from LaFace. He was signed to LaFace. He had got dropped from them, and I guess him and Toomp started working together. <clears throat> and um you know Toomp had you know had, you know Toomp was always a, a guy that was always selling tracks in Atlanta, this that and the third. So he had a certain level of respect with people there and um and he also knew the guy jason jeter so what ended up happening is he introduced jason jeter and ti to each other so when um they start getting a little momentum and getting a little street cred with the records that they were doing before the atlantic deal showed up uh what happened is is um you know um jason jeter and um ti for what to tell me they did the 32 fake out you know, they went up to Atlantic on their own and cut the deal and told Atlantic them that Toop was just the producer of the music, not mm -hmm. a not a like a third party. I mean, like a third member of what the situation was. Yeah, because Toop made them out again. Like T.I. was done. Yeah, I mean, I like I say, you know that you know I don't know what the story is. I'm not you know from the Atlanta Chronicle. I'm just saying. That's what was told to me back then. Yeah, I know being politically correct, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Mr. Politically Correct. Yeah, man, fuck being politically correct. I'm just saying what it is. I, I, I don't, um, you know, I don't have a dog in the fight of any of those guys. I don't really know T.I. I don't know Jason Jeter at all. Wouldn't know him if I seen him on the street. You know, I just know too, just based off of the fact of what we did, you know, at, um, at Luke Records. And we're still good friends. To this day, even though when I try to call him, I can't get him on the phone all the time. But, you know, but if I was to see him out, I mean, I think the last time I seen Toomp in person was at um, Fresh Kid Ice Funeral. And we talked for about an hour then, you know, and that's, you know, what's funny 
it's almost Chris, you know, uh, Kid Ice's um, fourth anniversary of uh, of his death. So, you know, and, and and he doesn't get a lot of props to talk. He was like really the first legitimate rapper that was out of the South that actually um, was successful. You know what I mean? And he's of Asian and um, you know, Asian descent, and you know, he's like Chinese, like a Chinese Jamaican. He's from Trinidad. Mm-hmm. You know, he got black. Black and Chinese blood in him. Mm. That's that's dope, man. And how did his death, man? When he died, man, was that a real big blow to you? Um, we weren't on the best of terms at that time, but it was, you know, it was a trip to me because I knew that it had to do everything to do with the decision that he made a long time ago. Without, you know, him not getting his um shoulder amputated. See, a lot of people mm. thought that, you know. He had his arm in a sling like it was a publicity stunt or something like that. Like everybody said, that guy's arm is always broke. His arm is always broke. No, his arm was paralyzed. He couldn't move it. And he was scared to get the um, his shoulder to be made into a prosthetic. So he just mm-hmm. left it hanging. And instead of it just hanging and swinging, he put it in a sling. Wow, man. So that, and that came to affect him later on. That right. Exactly. On. Exactly. Right. That's sad, man. You know, do you ever feel like you didn't get a chance to get closure? Because like you said, y'all wasn't on the best of terms when he died. Do you ever wish you could have had that one more conversation with him? Well, I think some people you have closure with. You just know where you at with them. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, you know, I won't go too much into it, but I know that me and him, we weren't never to the point where I couldn't be in the room with him. And then also at the same time, you know, he's handicapped. What the hell are you, I mean, what kind of props you going to give for chin checking somebody that's handicapped, even though he might need the chin checking, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those situations where, you know, you're kind of handcuffed by your, um, by your morality. Mm-hmm. Hey, you, you know, what's funny. I think you mentioned morality. And we live in an era where everybody is so sensitive. You almost can't even tell the truth no more. You know, people <laughs> right. get offended. You know what I mean? Do you right. think Two Live Crew could have exist, existed in this current climate? Um, I think I think um, Two Live Crew could um, could exist in this climate, but maybe not necessarily the way that how Luke was handling some things with the. Um, with the uh, the journalists and people like that, you know, you pick and choose who you like. You can't really do that. You have to be politically correct. And he didn't really felt he didn't at that time. He didn't really feel like he had to be politically correct. And he kind of lightweight feels like that right now. He still feel like he can be an irritant when he gets ready to be. And you know, and that's just you know, that's just him. You know, good or bad, he just feels like. That's his um, approach. He would, in his defense, he would always say, you know, if it was me, I would do such and such. He never tried to coerce me to say this or to do this or to do that. He would just say, if it's me, he, he would always, it would always be on that. So he does, you know, he's one of them type of cats that um, he'll walk in the shoes that he walks in, good, bad, or indifferent. Mm-hmm. He's just that type of cat. And, you know, I well, guess one, in a certain degree, you got to respect that, I guess. Yeah, for real. You know, one last question. I promise this is the last question, bro. <laughs> who's the who's your biggest surprise out the South? Because you saw a lot of people early. Who's the biggest surprise to you? Like, wow, he really went and did it. 
Um, out of the South. Oh wow. Um, probably Rick Ross. Why would you say that? Because he was with Slip and Sliding them when they was in their heyday, and he never had a hit with them. You know what I'm saying? And um, I never even knew that he could rhyme as good as he did until um, um, the Hustling record came out and I heard it in the nightclub and I knew who it was, but I didn't really, you know, I said, wow, he did a, a thorough transformation. And, you know, he sounded extremely convincing. He was definitely Miami vibe, Miami attitude that hadn't showed up yet. You know, even though JT Money had, you know, Miami vibe and this, that, the third, but his thing was like next level, you know, Pablo Escobar type thought process. We, we knew, you know, JT never came off as being, you know, the ultimate dope boy. He never came off that way. He was, you know, he was the ultimate Miami, average Miami street guy that knew how to get money and, you know, this, that, and the third. But he wasn't viewed like he was on no Pablo Escobar type stuff like how Rick Ross portrayed himself, but we all knew guys like that in Miami. So, yeah. so, but Rick Ross was never viewed as that, as that guy. He came from an area where some of those guys come from, but he encompassed that whole thought process and morphed it into what people know as that's what, you know, Miami cat is on. Well, you know, one thing I will say about Rose, because he's a cool dude. All my encounters with him have always been like, he's an extra, he's a cool dude. You know what I mean? Right. Real cool dude. Ain't, ain't funny acting, man. And I think, man, you know, I get happy for dudes like that, man, because, you know, he, he fought the fight. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and he took it, you know, and, and this is the other thing. You can never take the fortitude from somebody. If a person gets an opportunity to be able to make something pop, you still got to have the mindset to be able to, once you're in it, to be able to cultivate it and make it into more. So mm -hmm. with that, I can say that, you know, you know, it's kind of like self-proclaimed. He's the biggest boss and he's showing it up in a lot of ways, owning 15 wing stops and this, that, and the third. And, you know, he getting money that people don't even think that he's getting and, you know, Anybody, maybe people don't really realize how significant Evander Holyfield was in the kind of house that he had in Atlanta. Oh, yeah, Ross is getting his money. Ross is very, Ross is doing his thing, man, and I give him his props. You know, a lot of people may not get into, but it's all entertainment to me. You know, it's just like somebody that write a movie. You know, that's his thing. He talks about, right. like you said, the next level Scarface, Pablo Escobar type of stuff. But... You know, he's living in the Vander Holyfield's old house. That house is huge. A lot of people don't know that house looks like a shopping mall. Right, exactly. And, um, you know, and the funny thing about it, he got it up off of him. So how do you just get it up off of him? You had to have it. You had to have the money. But maybe the money ain't coming off from, like I said, from the rap stuff. Maybe, you know, him and his family was able to cultivate all of those wing stops. They, I think they got like 15 to 20 wing stops. Oh, he's definitely doing his thing, man. But, you know... I appreciate you, big bro. And man, we gotta have you on here again, man. And um, you know, get ready for everybody out there in the LA area. Get ready for me and Mr. Mix's um ultimate booty shaking party. It's going down. Yeah, for sure.
Well, that concludes another episode of the Gangster Chronicles podcast. Be sure to download the iHeart app and subscribe to the Gangster Chronicles podcast. For Apple users, find a purple mic on the front of your screen, subscribe to the show, leave a comment, and rating. Executive producers for the Gangster Chronicles podcast are Norman Steele, James McDonald, and Aaron MCA Tyler. Our visual media director is Brian Wyatt, and our audio editor is Taylor Hayes. The Gangster Chronicles is a production of iHeart Media Network and the Black Effect Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeart Radio, visit the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Got my Prevnar 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic, and at higher risk, get vaccinated. But, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar 20. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar 20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.